0: I personally believe that once an entrepreneur comes in to share like their, their company with me, that they're sharing with me not a deck or a deal, they're sharing with me their current life's work. Mm. And so thus, I should respect the life's work of another That's just cool. as a human being.
1: Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me the next 30 minutes of your time. I promise it'll be worth it. On this episode, I got to interview Ryan Welsh, who is currently partner at Floodgate Ventures a venture capitalist firm that invests at the Seed and Series A stage. They were very early investors in Twitter, Refinery29 and Greatest, where Ryan and I actually met. Prior to Floodgate Ventures, Ryan was the VP of product at a little headphone company called Beats, or better known as Beats by Dre, and developed the Beats Music platform. As we all know, Beats was eventually acquired by Apple, which is where Ryan would find himself as an exec post-acquisition. Ryan has had a super interesting life. After studying computer science, he worked in the public sector as a director of public affairs at Coro Center of Civic Leadership. Whilst doing that, he ran a public affairs events business. He then went on to direct the US Department of Energy's program for market development of alternative fuel vehicles. But Ryan's true passion has always been in music. Ryan spent years as a DJ, touring the world and producing his own tracks. He even launched a music tech startup where he was the CTO and developed a truly innovative product. This was a great interview as we touch on product, venture capital and life at Apple. Also, this was a very long overdue interview, which I'm so happy we actually got to do. So shout out to Ryan for actually finding time to get this done. Okay, let's jump into the action. Ryan, how? Oh. First of all, thank you for coming on the show. Spent Absolutely, a, a long time coming. Uh, I've been trying to arrange the show for I think about a year now. I don't know. It's no one's fault. You know, life goes on, life happens. But uh, thanks for coming on.
0: Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I believe I can. It's one hundred percent my fault <laughs> not for taking so long.
1: That's fine. That's fine. But <laughs> so, Ryan, for those of you who do not know who you are. How do you introduce yourself when you are at a networking event? Uh,
0: I would say hi. Uh, I'm Ryan from uh, Floodgate. I'm a partner there. Uh, been there for a couple years. Um, my focus in investing uh, is uh, it's early stage because the firm is early stage, uh, and we I, I mostly look at um, what people would normally call quote consumer, mm. but the my focus is really around um, companies and ideas that have some level of base in psychology or behavior change or design. So my my overarching hypothesis is that design is design, and the and the use of psychology and storytelling is underutilized when developing technologies. And that we could build better things and more valuable companies if we utilize those principles in a clear, uh, more distinct way. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Prior to that, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, keep going,
2: keep going.
0: Yeah, prior to that, um, I ran product development for media at Apple. So that would be uh, movies, music, and television. Um, it's, I came to that job uh, from uh, running a product development design growth and international expansion at beat music uh, from beats by Dre. um the jobs those two jobs are pretty you know they're a whirlwind for sure yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty rare that uh you know your one one of your founders is uh if not if you consider both of them really uh are the subject of a pretty well-known hbo documentary so there's a uh it's Definitely had a, definitely has a lot of stories and a lot of learning.
2: Mm. Um,
0: but yeah, so I did I pro- did product development there, and then before that, I did a you know uh, my partners like to say I had the perfect uh, approach to being a consumer VC, which means that I had about fifteen different jobs before that. Yeah, I worked. In, <laughs> I worked. And I ran a nonprofit. I was in academia. I DJed for a living.
1: Yeah, we're, we're, gonna, get, we're gonna get yeah, those those. we're gonna get into all yeah. of those things. We're gonna get into all of those. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I think the, sh- the show that you're referring to is obviously The Defiant Ones with Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine, which I haven't actually gotten around to watching yet, but I thought you would be in that. Are you in that? No. No.
0: My my, pers- my perspective, uh, I mean, it's not like they called me up or like, hey, can you, you know, make a statement for this? Because it's not, that's, I mean, that that show is not about beats. The- Shows about it's the about... intertwining of Jimmy and Dre's story. And, yeah, you know, I, I only got to be a, a small, small, small part of that, but let me tell you, I learned a whole lot from from both of them and from who was the, um, I would say, the real creative force behind Beats music, which was Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. Mm. Um, I think that that like, you know, I looked at my role at um, at Beats as as one of just service. You know, I felt like I was given an opportunity that was, um, you know, I was very lucky to get and I just decided that I have no idea how long this is going to last. I think I've been given a seat on a rocket ship and I'm just going to do whatever is asked of me and I'm going to do it as best I possibly can. And I think that approach really worked. Um, you know, I didn't really care about my title. I didn't care about how many people I managed. I didn't care even really that much about my own personal development. I just felt like I would develop as a person, yeah, um, if, if I could, if I just did what needed to get done. Um, which is kind of how it is at every startup.
1: And yeah, let's let's back up a little bit <laughs> because okay. Beats is going to be a, a really um, significant part of this uh, this interview because, like you said, it was such a rocket ship, especially when you joined and. You know, the whole acquisition and joining Apple, etc., must have been crazy. But before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about early life. So you're originally from Pittsburgh before you made it to, you know, the golden gates of Silicon Valley. So what was early life like growing up in Pittsburgh?
0: So a common misconception is that I'm from, I was born in Pittsburgh, is because I've lived so long there and I've done so many things there. Uh, it's the place I've lived the longest but I was actually born um, right outside of Philadelphia oh. and I lived in the Philly metro area growing up uh, that's where all my family is right uh, growing up in growing up uh, growing up there was a um, it was a trip um, I went to I went to parochial school um, very small schools up until high school um, and it was a you know there's there's a uh, I was very fortunate to be able to go to um, go into places where I was, you know, given the opportunity to learn at a very deep level, and I tried to take as much advantage of it as possible. But then, you know, it, it's kind of interesting that it turned out that I, you know, I turned out doing what I ended up doing because, you know, a lot of what I experienced was pretty sheltered, and I didn't realize it until uh, until I until I left and went to college in Pittsburgh. Mm. Like, yeah, I mean, this is insane, but. I like. I just really had never had Thai food before I turned nineteen. Like I just never. I was just like, "What's this?" There's a whole country called Thailand, and they have a food. This is incredible. Um, And so, you know, my my my. I had a friend that was um, uh, that was from. Well, his his family was from India. He was born in the U.S. That was in my neighborhood, and we were we're actually still friends today. Wow. Uh, and we were, we, yeah, we, he actually just moved to Berkeley, which is crazy. But the, um, I I mean, my, when I was, I would hang out with him a lot, and I would hang out with another guy uh, um, whose name was Vince. And, like, his family was very Italian. And so I was very drawn to both of their family cultures because it was so deeply rooted in their traditions, in their, their country traditions. And so I, I guess early on, I, I really, like, started to gravitate towards, like, what it means to experience culture in depth. Mm. And that's just something that's driven me throughout the course of my entire life. Like whether it's music, technology, the arts, um, furnishings, like anything that, anything where there is a craft, I really appreciate the depth and
1: like the, the, the detail work that goes into becoming excellent at your craft. Mm. That's good that's good and and then so so you've gone to college and you 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 actually studied computer science right
0: yeah and at the university of pittsburgh to start nice and then um yeah so we uh i went to college um it's kind of an interesting story so i went to college and uh there was i got really into electronic music when i was in uh when i lived um back in in, uh, eastern pennsylvania and you know my parents hate when I talk about this, but I used to just be like, "Hey," I used to just say, hey, you know, I'm going, I'm going out for the night or maybe the weekend. And instead of like going to hang out at somebody's house, I would drive up to Ashbury Park, New Jersey or New York or Philadelphia and I would go to like a rave. Huh. And the parties that were happening back during those times are so different than what it is like now. I mean, it really felt like you were a part of something that was happening. Mm. Like it didn't, it didn't There wasn't no tickets. Like you had to, it was like you had to search and find them, and it was. It felt very, very underground.
1: It sounds like one and of so, uh, Steve Aoki's original parties. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, it, I I didn't never went to them. I went to some
0: original ones out here in San Francisco from the Wicked crew, but I never, um, I never went to, I never went to one of his. Uh, but he, um, what he, the. Uh, when I went to Pittsburgh, I went, I started going to parties out there. And, you know, I went for a a little while. And I realized that, like, what was different about the Pittsburgh parties is that they didn't have the same lighting and sound and production quality that the ones I saw in New York and Philadelphia. Mm. And so we, uh, me and a few friends came together and decided to start doing events. And the way that I learned about Um, how to produce like a big show is that I took a disposable camera that I bought at a pharmacy Mm. in the U S and then went to one of these big parties in New York. And I, instead of partying, I basically found, tried to like get my way backstage and to the production booths and everything. And I took, uh, photos, actual photos I had to get developed and, uh, Pictures of the gear, so I would know what they were using, mm. and then I and then I. And this is even before Google, so I used Alta Vista to look up what these things were. I didn't even know, what that, is. That I didn't even know what that manuals that went online.
2: I didn't even know what that is. And then
0: we rented the the gear and learned how to use it, wow. and then we started throwing parties that were just better in production than other people, wow. and that's how we started throwing parties.
1: And is that was that kind of like the the precursor to your epic DJ and producing career? <laughs> I wouldn't call it epic. Uh, it has,
0: has has a few has a few releases, um, and I, I actually, to be perfectly honest, I'm just my uh, my body's not really cut out for uh, you know living nocturnally with only a few hours of sleep during the day. Yeah. But the yeah, so no, I, I ended up uh, throwing parties, and de- learning how to DJ, and, and then eventually learning about music production while I was in college. And I mean, again, this is, you know, back when Logic was not owned by Apple and there was a, there was, it was a lot different. Um, you know, the first time I ever put, uh, you know, a beat on a, on a computer, it was in, you know, OS nine in, in, um, in something called Cubase, but the, uh, the, I mean, eventually after, I mean, I went to grad school and then got a, um, you know, I was getting an advanced degree in CS and I thought I was going to get a PhD. Wow. Uh, and, you know, eventually I decided that academia was not really the right life for me. I didn't think it was a good idea to fight um, in the academic world over getting a position like a professorship at a university that wasn't in the middle of nowhere. Mm. Like basically the value proposition for my whole life was, hey, spend eight years learning everything there is to learn about this one specific thing, become an expert. And then you may get the opportunity to do research at the university of Idaho. And I'm like, wait a minute. I don't want to listen to
1: that. sounds pretty crappy. To be like, honest, this yeah.
0: yeah it, just, it, it didn't feel like I had a good shot of being able to be great. And, um, and so I decided to leave and then I took a year off after graduate school. Um, and, uh, and just did music full time. Awesome. And it was, it was great. I mean, it was uh, one of the most fun years of my life. But also, you know, if you decide to go on a little mini tour, like a regional tour, you know, your working hours are, you know, somewhere between 12 a.m. and 6 Mm a.m. And, you know, if you're sleeping during the day or you're resting before your gig, you're kind of sleeping in the afternoon, early evening at least. And what ends up happening is that over a period of time, you start to realize that your after work conversations, like when you go see your friends or something for happy hour, your after work conversations are with people who have been partying and are up at 6am. Like, after a while, you start to have this existential thought, like, am I even having a conversation with a person right now? They're not gonna remember this conversation. I'm the only one that's going to remember this. Yeah. <laughs> and so it starts to feel pretty lonely. And this is before people had like social media as a crutch, or could talk to people in that way, or could get lost in their phones. And so after a while, it just really wore on me, and I decided I didn't think that the, you know, the that the performing life in terms of an artist was really for me. For
3: you,
1: okay. But then you wanted to like still hang around the scene, so then I guess that's why you came up with that company Pulse Locker. So where did that come from?
0: Well, it was definitely a few years past. Um, so I mean, that's just, you know. I had, I had basically done a few other things. I'd gone back to Carnegie Mellon, um, another university in the Pittsburgh area, and I was um, working there on a fellowship. And, um, and I still continued to throw parties. Mm. Um, there was an event series that wasn't a rave that was called Flux that we did. And then um, you know, I ended up uh, doing another event series in a nightclub, did some talent buying. And so there was always like a, a peppering of doing something in the music industry. And so I came out to San Francisco to um, to meet with SoundCloud when um, they were thinking about expanding into the U.S. I mean, this is like twenty ten, twenty eleven time frame. Yeah. And I met with two people that had an idea around a music subscription service that could be utilizing that could utilize uh, DJ apps for playback. So the idea is that if you can have Spotify play one song, why not be able to have it play two songs? And have it be rights managed and pay the artist the right way, et cetera. because most DJs just steal music and trade it on USB keys. I mean, it still happens today. Yeah. It's it's pretty it's pretty backwards comparatively. And so what we decided to do was, um, you know, try and build a piece of technology. Well, they had asked me, they're like, "Can you build a piece of technology that allows you to um, to play two songs at the same time, and mix them? Yeah. You know, even if you had it rights managed like Spotify." Initially, I said no. And then I had a, like, a very cliché moment in which I was in the shower and I'm like, oh, wait, I think you can do it. <laughs> and so, and so um, with my uh, longtime friend from uh, college, Mike Snyder, we built uh, that piece of software.
1: And like, um, how did you go about, you know, I'm really interested in like learning how you actually went about the whole creative process of, okay, idea tech users like what was that kind of process like
0: well i don't think that in pulse locker it was the you know i don't know if it's the the key the best example because it didn't take off like a rocket ship but the um i can tell you that we saw in in with the people that we knew like the 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 different djs and this wasn't just performance djs at parties this was wedding djs and, and other different djs in market we just saw that there's a lot of DJ equipment being sold, but there was no music attached to that DJ equipment. Mm. So people were going out and spending $2,400 on a set of Pioneer CDJs, and then they were, you know, okay, well, how do you get music for it? Well, you can kind of get it from iTunes, but it doesn't have everything, and then it's got DRM, and then you can, well, Spotify, you can't get the music on the CDJs, and, and like, and so it's like, wait a minute, there's, like, obvious friction here, which we can reduce. So what we tried to do was just find a point of Friction, in which there was money that could flow through, like that would make more, but that would more easily flow through that point, and then just put a piece of technology there and allow everything to to more seamlessly join together. So for us, we thought a subscription for uh, unlimited DJable tracks would make it just easier for people to be able to, you know, experiment, have fun, DJ, etc. Yeah, and. I think that that hypothesis is still true. I think that where, uh, where we executed, I think, in, in a way that was less efficient than I think we could have, is that the the experience of DJing rapidly changed while we were in the process of building it, building the software. Out. So, you know, people were really into laptop DJing when we started, and then, by the time we had version one of our software released for X, like it was definitely becoming a little bit more out of favor.
2: Hmm. And so
0: as soon, as soon as we were dependent on doing integrations and, and like working with companies to do distribution, it just became a much slower process. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that um, I wish that we, I would have planned to build something that was integrations first and not as a pivot Early on Mm. I thought we could go straight to consumer because I thought we had enough demand now mind you I don't we 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 saw the demand people wanted to use it Mm. Um, I think that that was uh, the I think that the biggest challenge was is that we didn't know how to tell people that it existed that was at the right moment for them to want to try it and then make a buying
1: decision right got it so is that more of a marketing issue is that like an educational issue
0: It kind of gets back to my point I was having around storytelling before. Yeah, like all this marketing, marketing, product design, customer service, all of it—that is product. Like, it is a overarching concept because there is no like uh, like a user of Clorox bleach does not like does not go and say. You know what? I think the marketing for this bleach is a little off, but the product is pretty good. Like they don't think about it in this in the same way. If Clorox bleach makes a mistake in their marketing, then they their whole product is uh, is tarnished. People trust it less. Yeah. And so when we when I we design things, and this is something that I did not learn until after Pulse Locker, the design of an experience for uh, a user, a customer, an audience, however you want to define it is they don't care about your organizational structure. Mm. They don't care about who's in charge of product and who wants to, who's the best designer and your team. No one cares. They experience one thing, which is what your brand is. And you have to provide them trust enhancing experiences along the path.
2: Yeah.
0: And I think that where we made a mistake is that we did not, give people a first point of contact at Pulse Locker in which they could immediately trust us to be able to provide them something that they really cared about. This is an audience that really cared about what their music so much so that they were still paying a dollar 29 a track in 2012,
2: 2013
0: yes. Oh, yes. where most of the world was not. Yeah. Of course. Um, and so I think that that's, I think that's definitely a place where we, I mean, there's all kinds of technical errors I think we, we made. Like I think that there's, you know, there's. I don't think we were very efficient with capital in the first couple years. Mm.
1: Because you guys Um, raised, you did a seed round, one point five mil, right?
0: uh, what? How much we raised? Yeah. I don't know what the total amount that they they raised was, because I left after I left after the first year of like post funding.
1: Right. Because I saw they raised one
0: point five. Our our initial round was a million bucks. Right.
1: So then you left there to join Beats.
0: Yeah, so I had um, I had met um, a few people from the Beats team. Um, I actually thought uh, so. This, this it's kind of a funny story. Um, the uh, there's probably two parts to it. One is um, I began to become extremely anxious when we had about six months of cash left. <laughs> okay. I just didn't see the, I didn't see the path that we were going to get to. Like a break-even point or enough growth to go raise another round,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I think that, and, and you know, I believe my my uh, my co-founders would agree with this. I became a little nuts, <laughs> um, and I, I don't think I don't think that my uh, my approach to the situation was as calm or even keeled as my approach would be right now. Wow. But I was a little crazy, mostly because like I had moved to San Francisco and I was broker than broke, <laughs> like I was barely making rent i was just i just was barely making it yeah. and i had been just barely making it for a while and you know that really that really takes a toll on you and oh so the- oh
1: i know i know
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah and so it really takes a toll on you and so um you know and to be perfectly honest i had been just barely making it for a very long time Yeah. So I started getting a little bit nuts and I don't think I was the easiest person to deal with. That's for sure. Cause I was so anxious. Mm. But one of the things, you know, this is a Jimmy Ivy uh, you know, lesson in life is anytime you get any fear in you, just put it behind you and let it propel you forward.
2: Mm. And that
0: will, that will, that will help you get to the ultimate goal. And, you know, I basically tried to, you know, I did that before even hearing him say that. And I just, <laughs> Uh, I just went and I was like, okay, I don't know if we're going to be able to raise another route of financing. Let's find a home for the engineering team. Because, I mean, a lot of the people in this company are my friends. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I mean, this might seem selfish, but, like, I just didn't want to fire my friends. Yeah. I just thought it would be a terrible thing to do. Mm. And so I was just like, okay, I never want to have that conversation. I'm so <laughs> uncomfortable It's like, thinking about it. Let, and like I'm also broke. Let's find a solution. Mm. And so I went to this conference um, called Meet in Cannes and uh, it was still, Meet is now in the summer, but it used to be in January. It was a freezing can wow. in January. So we go over there. It, we did it for a startup competition, whatever. But I went in, did the startup competition, left and then immediately went to the bars. And started hanging out with all the business development people from all the different major streaming services looking for an acquisition. Hmm. And I met someone there that, you know, introduced me to um, that introduced me to, uh, you know, somebody as a lawyer at Beats by Dre. Yeah. And, you know, they were, you know, they had uh, you know some interest in acquiring Mog. We were and I was like, OK, we built a back end. So we built a content fulfillment system. So the way that the song is actually played when you hit play, and they had a front end that they were going to remake be to beat music. And I'm like, great! Uh, I know that you don't have a back end. I have a back end. I don't have a real front end that you could use. You have a front end. Let's join forces. Wow! And that that conversation got me in the door with um, with all the folks from Beats by Dre, and um, and and I really was pitching for them to um, to acquire the company yeah and we got pretty far down the path um i don't know if they ever what, what i don't know if they would have they never they never dropped the term sheet or anything but um at least my impression was that they were really interested in it um especially within the conversations they were having mm. uh we were having but the uh eventually it came down to a pretty pivotal point where we were supposed to have like a big meeting with all the founders and everybody together and my two co-founders said no I, we're not interested in selling the company. We're gonna, we're gonna raise more capital. I don't know if they believed that it. it was real. I don't know. I don't know if they were tired of working with me at that point. <laughs> I mean, let's be perfectly honest here. It wasn't like I was like Mr. Bright and Shiny every every day. I was really frustrated. Yeah. Like you know that you know we were having you know we're in a startup that's close to cash out. Everybody really cares about the idea. Everybody has an opinion. They have three co-founders, not two. Wow. And so. You know, there was, it was tough. Um, and our, our investor, who's a really great human being, he was a single human being from uh, from the music industry. And he, he was, you know, he was concerned about his investment.
1: Oh, so you so, got that $1 million from one guy?
0: Yeah. Wow.
1: That makes you four co-founders, to be honest. <laughs> 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 wow.
0: Yeah, funny thing is he became the CEO eventually. Yeah, there you go. We, we ended up uh, not immediately parting ways, but I just thought, okay, well, we're just on different pages, totally. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, you know, this is, this doesn't seem like it's right. When all of a sudden you're the one that's saying things are wrong and, like, pushing for changes that not everybody is really agreeing with, uh, at least on the, the founding team. Yeah, Like, I don't know. Maybe you are wrong. Maybe you're the part that's wrong. Like they could be just fine without you. Mm. And so um, I actually was really embarrassed because I thought, oh, well, I overpromised to Beats by Dre. I'm like, now they, you know, they, I, I'm putting the company up for sale and now I can't sell it. Mm. So I go back to them and um, and I, I remember this conversation where I was like, I, I just felt really dumb because I just said like, you know, I'm sorry, man. I mean, I wasted your time. Like you went through all this diligence. I talked to all your team and, you know, uh, I'm just really sorry I waste your time. I don't really, I don't know what I'm going to do. And literally, I'm like on the phone with Google, interviewing to be a PM. Mm. You know, like they're like, "How many blue marbles will can you fill San Francisco with?" <laughs> oh, and I'm like, this is gonna, "I mean, this is." I was just like, "Somebody give me a job. I got to pay my rent." Um, and so, uh, and so I end up. Um, well, so I I end up deciding I'm going to leave. False locker because yeah. I just thought I was a detriment to success, not a, not an addition. Right. And then I I ended up, uh, you know, I ended up going back to Beats, apologizing, and they just, you know, guy and pocket, to just started laughing at me. It's like it's just like, well, I don't know. Can you build it again? Like we built the thing once. Can you build it again? And I'm like, oh. <laughs> I, I truly was so blinded by the idea of like trying to get like my, i was CTO of the, the startup. Yeah. I was like, got to find a home for the engineering team. Got to find a home for the engineering team. I was so blinded by that goal. I just had never thought that I could just go work someplace else. Mm. Like it just never occurred to me. So but that was, that was the thing. I was completely blinded by the goal. And so I was just like, Oh, okay. I just, you know, we eventually talked about it a little bit more and I just said, yes. I remember, I remember the negotiation was great. He was just like, here's what I think we can pay you. I'm like, sounds good. Excellent. Great. Take me Yep.
1: Okay, cool. Excellent. Yeah. yeah.
0: Sounds, sounds good. Sounds good. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was more money than I'd ever seen in my life. Of
1: course. I'm and sure. so I
0: just, yeah, I was just like, great. I was paying myself nothing at, at, at a, uh, at least by San Francisco standards at, at, um. So I thought that was great.
1: So were, were, there, then, no, were there no um, IP issues if you were going to go over and build, like, essentially the, the same tech?
0: Well, here's what I thought. I thought that they wanted me to come on and be an engineer. Mm. My expectation was I was going to come. I had talked to some big data people. My thought was I was going to come uh, work for a really smart guy named Brian Rogotsky. And I was going to go work on big data and, like, do engineering. And I was going to be an engineer again. Like, I, I had no clue that they had thought, like, I should do product, and, and so, I, and I had done some product work before, but not at this level, mm. I mean, you know, it, I mean, this is a pretty, pretty massive, and so, we talked about it, and they were like, well, what we'd like you to do is, you know, come on and run product, and I was, and I just was like, okay, sure, I can, I mean, I can do that, and I'm, like, Googling, like, how to run a product organization, <laughs> not really, not really, but, But really but but, I mean I had done it before, but there was not but the 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 scale was way more than what I'd ever imagined that I would be doing. And so like I said in the beginning, I just said, Okay, I accept this, like I accept this, I'm just going to do like I'm just going to agree to do the things that need to get done and just do them at like the best and the best way I possibly can. So like what that largely meant for me is that I initially took on everything that sucked. Mm. Like, integration that's not going well with third party that doesn't, like, (laughs) that wants to design their own thing, got it, you wanna, like, I'll take care of that. Like, weird marketing campaign that, like, seems to be going south, I'm on that, no problem. Like, being the point of contact for our integrations so that, you know, all of the voice and copy and marketing all align, great. like. Start the growth team and deal with analytics and, and uh, you know, all of the, you know, the non-sexy stuff around just measuring the success of a subscription service. I'm on top of that. So, so what was like, that, what
1: I, was that, I guess, what was that transition like going from like, you know, I mean, I don't know how Pulse Lock, how big was Pulse Locker when you left? Maybe what, five of you, ten of you? Ten. And then you went to... You know Beats, which is obviously a rocket ship from day one, doing maybe what three hundred million when you got there, five hundred million when you got there.
0: Well, Beats and Beats Music are two separate companies, so I didn't get to experience the full force of Beats by Dre except for when I was in when I was in uh, when I was in Los Angeles. So Beats Music was a separate company, separate office in San Francisco. Right. So when uh, when Beats came about. Um, but like with music Music came about, they formed it as a separate company, separate entity. So like when the acquisition from Apple happened, it was both companies. Um, and yeah, so, uh, you know, it, it felt a little bit more like a startup and it did like a normal startup than it did. Like when you went down to LA to meet with, um, folks for Beeps, but I mean the Mog acquisition, which was another music service, um, that they had acquired, um, right before I had joined. So the Mog acquisition had already happened. People were already working on it, so there was a decent team of people, including product and design, and a bunch of other folks. Right. By the time that I showed up there, and um, those people, um, you know, the, I mean, so it felt like it was felt like a meaningful increase in uh, in number of people from where I was at. But like I said, you know, I don't feel like, especially in product, like you're not measured by how many people are on your team. You're measured by how effective you are, mm. and I actually think the less number of people you have, the better. And like I just went in and I just realized that there were people that I thought that were significantly better at doing the job than I was, and that I was fortunate to have the opportunity to try and like contribute in a way. So I again, I did not look at this like it was like a, uh, it was anything but an opportunity to be of service. The thing that was really nice about this is that I wasn't going to go work at a, at a software company I did where I didn't care about the outcome. Mm. I was really bought into the idea that it wasn't just a, like we weren't just about like being another subscription service at Beats. We were about meaningfully changing the economics for artistry and creation. And it wasn't just about getting more people paying ten bucks a month or 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 anything like that. And like the, the the point was that we saw because YouTube essentially and Spotify together with their free tiers had devalued music to almost nothing. Mm. And so, and people were only paying for the removal of ads. Mm. And there is a major, major problem with that. Not immediately. I mean, people, it's a minor problem immediately, but a major problem in 10 years, if that's the way the economy is going to be built, because you're going to have a generation of people that do not think of music as worthwhile. They'll think of it as commodity. Yeah, and and suddenly there's no reason to get into a commodity industry, and music, will, the music as a cultural force will suffer, and that's what we were. That's what our mission was: it was to rebuild the music economy, the creator economy. And so when you go to work every day, you know, and your job is basically to you know support the creation of a new, uh, a new economy for music. I mean, it's really easy to take out the trash. Yeah, it's really easy to like go work with partners that are being taught or it's really easy to stay there late and reorganize something that seems to have gone awry mm. uh, and that's basically just what I did and so the transition was was difficult because it was a little new but I mean honestly compared to what the acquisition was like it's like it was easy
1: so that sounds like by far probably the best experience you've had in terms of career right
0: yeah, I mean I, I would look at like the way I would define best is where I learned the most. Yeah. The co- the combination experience was incredible. I think that um you know, uh, I'm I'm always I'm always hesitant to um, to mention some of the some of the stuff that happens there because um it actually is so meaningful to me that, you know, I don't I don't like speaking of it in a trite way or, you know, in a way that like, you know, so I don't talk I don't talk about this stuff a lot on social media because I don't I don't want to like you know build build some sort of like false like intelligence or celebrity or thought leadership bullshit mm. um, on the backs of like some of the you know more famous people that I've had a chance to work with. Mm. But but truthfully I realized that like um, I had some pretty amazing people that I got to work with and like the idea that I was able to learn how to develop like a truly meaningful, high quality and and emotionally driven uh, piece of technology from Trent Reznor and how to consider what it means to market at a global level from Jimmy Iovine. Like those two things were, I mean, I don't know how I'm going to have an, an opportunity where I'm going to learn that much in that short of amount of time. Yeah. Um, and so that I mean, that's essentially what my takeaway was from beef and apple uh, Is that I, I just learned how to do those things and where the successes and failures are were, were in between I mean, I am so grateful for both of them. Like they they truly changed my life mm. uh, And not just because of some financial bullshit outcome um, It really it, it, it's not about it's not about the finances the money or the acquisition or the headlines or anything It was just the fact that like the way that I thought about the world before I, I met the team there, not just Jimmy and Trent, but everybody there. The way I thought about the world was limited and I didn't know it was limited. Mm. And now the way I think about the world is much more expansive. And that is a gift that is very hard to get. Uh, and I, you know, I, I'm very grateful.
1: What do you think, in particular, if you can like pin it down to one thing if possible, what made I guess your team at beats uh beats music like what made it become successful like what made it what it was what it is today?
0: you know there's a there you're right there is there's a lot of different things, but here's um this is what I believe, and I think that you could probably poke holes in this, but i'll I'll just give you what I think the strongest point was. I think that they're like Trent provided um, okay, sometimes difficult, but always, uh, oh, I should say ever clarifying strong vision for what we wanted to achieve. There was always a point of taste and a point of um, quality that was being driven home all the time. Like every single moment that we were trying to, to build something and we were like much like how he is with music, we were relentless with trying to, to find the most, the highest quality and the most and the, I guess the most tasteful um, outcome from building the thing that we were building. Now the um, I think that the team around beats because we grew, I mean it was like 20-ish when I signed on and then 220 ish when we integrated into Apple and that was about a year and a few months later. Wow. So, mm-hmm. so like just do the math 52 weeks a year. How many people did we add on average per week? I mean, it like, you know, suddenly you're like, who are these people that are surrounding <laughs> us? Like, it never and so the, like the, the growth of the team was astronomical. It's the fastest thing I've ever seen. And so, what we did though is that we always kept the product vision first. So every, I think that if you walked into the Beats office the day before we were acquired, or before anybody knew we were acquired, we were going to be acquired, and you went to a QA engineer or the head of engineering or the head of ops or the the uh, human resources person or product or design, all of those people would generally give you, in their own words, what the vision, their articulation of the vision of the company Mm. and everybody shared it. So there wasn't a, there wasn't a question of like, there wasn't people that were there to like, you know, push their career forward or, or like there, there was no primary, there was no difference in primary motivation. It was just everyone's primary motivation was their own personalized articulation of this very strong vision that Trent and Jimmy gave us that allows you to do so much independently, without any type of organizational structure, because if you hire good people and they're aligned with you on the vision and they feel like it's their own, you can trust them to do the right thing. Hmm. You don't have to check up on them. You don't have to manage them. And I think that that thing, which I couldn't articulate until after, and I'd seen a few other examples of it, of like managerial systems and growth not working in companies. Like I, I that's what I realized. I was like, oh, that's. Thing that worked there. It was mm. that we all shared a singular vision.
1: That's good. That's awesome. And, so, and then, so obviously the acquisition happened, it was huge. Uh, I actually remember when Dre and Tyrese announced it. <laughs> and then okay. um and then, so yeah, you transition out of you transition from Beats into Apple. I'm sure that integration must have been a whole nother like whirlwind, like one whirlwind to another. And then um, you spent some time at Apple. I so would,
0: yeah, yeah. That, that, let's, let's, not, uh, let's not gloss over the integration point. Okay. The um, And the reason why I say that is because um, I think that that was easily the most, like, difficult part of my entire life, not even career life. Wow. Like, that there was a, there was a, 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 there was, you know, you have, you know, you're working around NDAs. Your team is really stressed. You just launched a huge product. We had um, we had a few key team members that were on the staff that were out with some serious medical conditions. Um, I mean, there was just so much stuff that was happening all at the same time, mm. and all the while, every, you know, people are saying like, "Oh, we got to keep this thing a secret. We got to work on this. Apple really cares about secrecy. You know, you can't." Jimmy told that story in the fine ones. That's it. By the way, that is 100% true. I got that I got that same speech. It's like it's like um and uh, man, I remember I remember the day that I got it too. Um but the the uh but doing the integration like, you know, just like, you know, I'd never sold a company in that way before. I also had never, you know, had, you know, 200 plus people that were counting on me to do uh, without them even knowing on it, counting on me to defend them and mm. to like find them a place in a new organization mm. and make sure that they had a good role. Mm. And so suddenly at my job stopped being product, stopped being design and growth. Like that was like my night job and my day job was finding the best path for each member of this team. And, um, you know, and and with a lot of people that I could have used help from, like kind of out because of pretty serious illnesses. And uh, you know, I, uh, you know, when when do you expect that that's going to be your job? Mm, yeah, <laughs> like like that that, and it just changed. And so that I think that you know, there's definitely I definitely made a few errors in the way that I communicated during that time. Like I really uh, I look back on it, and I I had some learnings that didn't come from success, Uh, and I. You know, I, I, uh, I, I really, it was really tough and, uh, I don't want to ever underplay, you know, both what, um, you know, what that team had to go through, mm.
2: um,
0: during that time. Cause it was really, really difficult, um, for sure. Wow. Uh, I don't even know what it was like on the Apple side until we got there. Yeah. But, um, but then working at Apple was, um, you know, it's, uh, got all the goods and bad you think about working at Apple. Um. You know, I think that, you know, there it is the, you know, it is the largest company in the world for a reason. Yeah. The, uh, some of the talent that they have working there is like, I don't even know what beyond world class means, but it's there. Wow. And uh, I just, I am very, you know, in short, you know, you saw what got released. Um, I had a chance to work you know, on, on a lot of different products there, including Apple music. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's definitely some, we definitely had challenges. We definitely had successes. I feel like, you know, when I left the product was on a good path, um, to being successful and you know, that's pretty much it. I mean, I got the, I got the build a really, really huge, meaningful product at scale, um, which is great, but. If, if I had to give you any reason for why I, I wouldn't stick around there forever, yeah. um, I would say that, um, you know, I, I think that there's a certain type of like long-term very like, it, it, it's good to be at Apple for 10 years if you're going to do it
2: mm-hmm. and like
0: really commit, really commit to doing something at scale and in that organization for 10 years. And I did not, um, I realized that like a lot of what the job is, is not actually doing the work. The job, a lot of the job is clearing the path for people who are way more talented than you to do the work. Mm. And, um, the way that that happened at Apple was something that I, I didn't really feel like it was exactly the right thing for me. Like I just did, I just didn't think that it was going to be a great idea to, um, you know, to, to be political and to, like, work within a, a really, really huge organization like that. I just didn't think that I was going to do my best service for them. Um, and I think that, you know, to Apple's credit and to um, specifically to, you know, um, Eddie and Robert Kondrick and all the other folks that I worked with at Apple, like, you know, they gave me a whole lot of rope. And um, sometimes I almost hung myself with it, but I think that they <laughs> respectfully gave me a lot of rope to work within that system. And I greatly appreciate it. Um, they were, you know, they, it wasn't the easiest process in the world, getting music out, uh, nor TV, nor anything else that we worked on. Wow. Um, but then again, I think that that's just part of trying to maintain high quality at Apple. Yeah.
1: And, you know, just got back to the point that you made, you know, that, you know, you know, at Apple, the job is to make way for people who are, you know, ten times better than you, who can do the actual job better than you. Do you think that's? Do you think that's the role of any startup or any leader? Um.
0: Yes. I mean, I, that is something that I that is something that I believe is part of the. I do believe that. Yes. The. I, I, I don't think that it was the right, you know, exact work style match for me at Apple. But if you if you know the one thing I did take away from it is that it's my management philosophy, which is basically three things. One is the thing I mentioned before about having clear vision. Like I think that having a shared clear vision is like my number one priority as a, um, as a leader in any company, board member, executive, whatever. Um, the, and so if you have every single person that you've hired, and they all have their own shared articulation of the vision that you're working towards. You should be able to trust them to independently operate.
2: Mm.
0: They should do what's best. And the ownership, like what that means is that you reduce your risk of, of adding more employees and communication and team and all this other stuff. You reduce the risk down to whether you can hire well. And I'm down for that risk. Mm. So first is shared vision. And then like it's not a it's not a statement, it's not like you have to understand something on a wall. Um, you have to be able to ha- like continually be in conversation with all the people on your team around that vision, so that everyone understands it in their own domain and also and uh, in their own way. So then, if you have that shared vision, the next thing you should do, at least I, at least I try to do as a um, as a leader, is clear that path. Yeah. Like, and this is more around less around um, you know what I was kind of referencing at Apple, and more about what I was doing at Beats, like bad. Like bad like work that no one else wants to do or has no time to do but is also very important. Got it I'm on it. Like, you know team member you want to work on like the the you know this particular part I will make sure that you are not distracted by this uh, From doing this work Um, The there's there's a whole lot of different ways to do it, but I feel like the higher up in the, uh, the hierarchy and the deeper I get in my career, the more I am interested in doing really, uh, like difficult or painful work to allow people to do the thing that they are really good at and want to do to uh, advance their career. Right. And then um, uh, the last is um, when I tell my teams or even startups that I'm on the board of or whatever, like how, to operate, how to how to operate from a product perspective at least. There's usually one team that drives the company, right? So, in a, a lot of consumer companies, it's product and design, and sometimes in enterprise companies, it's sales or it's engineering or whatnot. But if you, there is a lead team. There is, there. You're either an engineering first company, product first company, whatever.
2: Yeah, yeah. That
0: team, whoever that is, they should be of service to the rest of the organization. So, if you can set the strategy, you can't set the process. So, you can't have both. I like that. You have to be able to choose one. So, the easiest way to explain this is in your very typical product and engineering conflict. Engineering has stuff that they're always being told to do. Product is always the one saying, hey, let's do these things. This is the priority. So, product owns the priority. Engineering owns the queue. Now, there's, I mean, it's not exactly black and white in that way, but if your' product, you do not get to tell engineering what to do and how to do it. You can mm. set the priority of how it's being done. So you can set the strategy, but you have no control over the process.
2: Mm. Engineering
0: should set the process in the way that they want to set it, and then product should morph their process to serve engineering. And so that's like on a company level, that's like the lead team should always be of service. Mm. Then on individual interactions, when I, you know, ask product managers that have worked with me to go into a meeting, I I just say, listen, walk into the meeting in ninja mode. Like no one hears from you. They don't know that you're there, but suddenly everything is made clearer, faster, better just from your presence there. Be self-cleaning. Like anytime that there's a question in which there needs to be clarification take on the role take on the work to make sure that it's clarified Hmm. if there's you know any loose threads any open items anything that's preventing other people from doing their work that is our job our job is not to tell people what to do our job is to also individually clear the small paths for other people to get their work done and ultimately with those three things working in tandem the shared vision clear clearing the path for each other and uh, making sure that you, know, you are of service, that you're you know, all of being self-cleaning when you're going into your interactions. Those three things just continually build trust in the organization over time. Mm. And that's the most important thing around, ha- around leadership. Leadership should be measured by how trusting your organization is. And if people trust each other and they feel like they're aligned on the shared vision, the right things will happen. You don't have to have sixty-five different reviews, and you know, uh, you know, you don't have to have all the structure and, and, and everything to to make it make your organization work. And the, here's the most important thing: you don't need processes. Mm. Like it's not necessary. Like anytime I hear someone go, "Well, I think we're going to need to make a process for this," and I'm like, "Ooh, that makes me feel." But doesn't
1: like but, but doesn't process bring structure and organization?
0: Yeah, sure. But to what end?
1: Hmm. Sure.
0: Like what is the point? Like listen, I'm all I'm all about the Toyota model. Just in time Just processes. in
2: time, yes. Like,
0: yeah. Yeah, you don't need like there's not a, there's not a need for a high degree of structure because eventually it like structure and processes inherently have some sort of inefficiency. And so if those if the process isn't designed from a point of trust between two groups, two people, whatever, three groups, three people, if it's not built from this, like sort of shared vision, it's going to be something that just kind of sits there and it's something that you have to do.
2: Yeah.
0: And things that you, and, th- and I can tell you, like, you know, organizational debt acc- uh, accumulates very quickly. Mm. So, you know, I don't think that, um, I don't, I don't, I don't think that I'm not a, an anarchist. in in my organizational style but i do i do believe that there is um i question heavyweight processes all the time because i don't think that they're inherently necessary yeah especially if you're less than a thousand people in your org
1: wow that's good i think a lot of people need to hear that because um i think startups as well we hear a lot all the time to do this process is automate this do that do that do that and it's just kind of like it's a, it gets very, very monotonous integrating processes when there's, you know, 10 people on the team, right? Um, so, you know, I think, that, I think that makes a lot of sense. So I want to transition now and talk a little bit n- now about, I guess, what you're doing now. So you're a VC, <laughs> lot of nows there. Uh, you're talking, so you're a VC now. So yes I, yes, I am. You sit on boards and you make investments. So this is a very, you're a far cry away from DJing. Um, and uh, producing, but what's it like being a VZ?
0: So I wouldn't say you're I'm a far cry from being a DJ because <laughs> they're, 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 if you think about it, they're like be, investing is can be broken up into three things. having a network of of, of companies in which you can um, you know work with hopefully select a few to invest in. Yeah. the actual selecting process and supporting. Supporting companies is not like DJ, but you know, there's definitely some analog to like, you know, building up a collection and then selecting. Yeah. And so the the uh, although admittedly maybe a little bit of a stretch because <laughs> honestly this, these aren't like it's not like and this is something that I think differentiates um, you know my thoughts in VC from you know from what I at least I see in market is that you know the like the my main experience in BC has been wow. is that I find that uh, it is a transactional experience in which it should be a relationship experience.
2: Mm. So
0: people want money and I get that like my job is essentially to sell money to people and like hopefully they believe that we are going to provide them some service and hopefully we come through on what that service is that's part of that money. So we support entrepreneurs in developing their, their, you know, their ideas or dreams. Largely what I see, though, in market is like kind of transactional networking. It's like, hey, can you introduce me to this person so I can sit there and talk to them? And this is the numbers. And here's what I think is going to happen. And like, I'm going to do 500K. Can you write the check? Boom, done. Mm. Like that. I mean, that's just not my style. I find that, like, a lot of people like that style. They, they do it. and It seems to work for them. Like, I just don't feel like it is a transactional thing. I look at it and this is why. I've is such a great firm yeah. is that we are, we do early stage investments, but we don't do hundreds of them a year. We do a few per year per partner mm-hmm. and we really focus on each individual investment and we try to give it the time. Um, you know, we, I personally believe that once an entrepreneur comes in to share like their, their company with me, that they're sharing with not a deck or a deal i hate the word deals like I, I feel like it's totally reductive like the i they're sharing with me their current life's work mm. and so thus i should respect the life's work of another That's just cool. as a human being yeah and i find that because everybody's trying to become the next Quadrillionaire and have seventy-five <laughs> houses or something. I don't understand what everybody needs all this money for, but like in, in the search <laughs> and the in the search for money and power, which is a you know, if at least for me personally, not worth it. And the search for money and power, people have lost the uh, the focus that technology is meant to be transformative, mm. and that the pe- and that the people that they're talking to are giving you an opportunity to participate in their life's work. Yeah. And so that level of respect is something that I hope when I bring to this market industry whatever you want to call it asset class of investing. Yeah. I hope that people can see that when I meet with them. Like I and so you know there's I could talk to you about like fund strategy and here's how we write the checks and here's what the here's my thesis on AR and all this other stuff but like None of that matters because it changes so quickly. The thing that matters is having a really true North Star. Yeah. Just like I said about having the shared vision. Like I have to have a personal North Star, personal vision for how I think this type of interactions, relationship with an entrepreneur can go. And over the course of the last two years, I've realized that I'm probably going to be the high, higher touch type of person. Um, and I do not know if that is going to make me a really successful VC. When you it say, might make me a successful person. It might make me happy to be who I am. But the competition by people that are more concerned with, you know, making money, getting like, you know, gaining authority, power, building their firm, et cetera, like they're, as their primary motivators, they may be able to do it better than me. But I know that I will stay true to the North Star while I'm doing it.
1: So when you say high touch, what do you what do you mean by that?
0: Well, when when a lot of times in early stage investing, like, uh, you know, there'll be a lot of people that can, there's a lot of firms that can give you a smaller amount of capital and they, you know, they basically, the way that they call it a spray and pray, which is they just make a lot of small investments, a lot of things and then find one that works and then double, triple, quadruple down on it. Yeah. The way that we work is we don't do that strategy. We go with a very high conviction bet early on. Mm. And so like if you make a high conviction bet, that means you're spending more time up front to get to know the entrepreneur and what their their goals are. And then you're spending more time like per month, per week, however you want to think about it, making sure that the entrepreneur is set up to go from what we call from zero to one. So, like, most of the times that we see things, it's at idea stage, they haven't built anything yet, it's very, very early, but we believe in the team, we believe in the idea, we believe in the approach. So, we need to get you from zero, nothing, to something. And we have a lot of different frameworks that we use for, like, thinking through that problem. I think one of the strongest points of Floodgate is the is the, the, prime the, the mover leadership. Go
1: ahead. Is it Prime Mover?
0: Well, I mean, there's one of many. Sort of the, 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 the that we use. So the idea of around the prime mover is that the like there are like there are certain specific qualities that someone has around that, that make them uh, appropriate to approach a market. And it's not necessarily about who they are, or, you know, size and shape and how old they are, or whatever. It's not about that. It's not about demographics. It's about like their ability to generate insights. And so, you know, the here's a, an example of a framework I use for making investment selection. So I look at uh, the team of people when they come in to present. I'm looking for three separate insights from them. First is a market insight, exactly what it is that they see in the market that I don't necessarily see or that maybe I agree with, maybe I don't, and their rationale to get to it. What it is they, a product they've decided to create to address the insight they've learned about the market yeah, and then why they've decided to create it that way. And then distribution, how they plan to scale knowledge of what that product is and how to, and the the value that they're going to create. So the, those three things change all the time, the different insights. I mean, it's constantly changing, but what I do look for is their ability, like the team's ability to, to, um, Provide rationale for those for the way that they've come to those insights, and a prime mover is is and not maybe it's not one person maybe it's a team, but a prime mover is someone who can, uh, like rationalize and think through those three areas of a business in a way that indicates that they're going to be able to create something meaningful.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And
0: you, when you meet one, you know it. You just, you just, you, you're just like got it. And sometimes they're successful, sometimes they aren't. But when you meet one, you know it.
1: Yeah. And in terms of, I know you, you alluded to it, you know, a moment ago in terms of your investment philosophy. So, like, what have, can you give me an example of someone you've invested in recently and why you've invested in them?
0: Um, Let's see. I, I could probably give you Aconite. So, Aconite, even though they haven't released anything yet, I think that they... Um, are a very interesting case. So they are a set. They are a team. Um, it's two uh, two women. They come from. They're both technologists. They're both engineers. They both. I mean, one's a little uh, uh, more on the design side um, than the other, but they're both incredible designer, game designers, and storytellers. And so. When I was looking for um, companies that were to invest in, um, you know, in, in the come up of AR as the next platform, mm. I, my, one of my thesis was that um, storytelling um, was going to be extremely important in this area because people are going to have to learn how to use things in a new way. And I believe that uh, that the first point of intersection where AR was going to make a difference was going to be things that utilize location to provide some level of value. Mm. So I met, um, I met Nadia and star and they clearly showed in the first time I met with them that they were capable of generating really strong product and distribution insights, uh, around, uh, the idea of building almost a world of different games Mm. and the way that they think about, um, the way that they think about the interaction between your your mobile device, your, you know, your life on the internet, your life in the real world and how to mix those realities together is, you know, some of the most remarkable thinking I've seen in the sector, and mm-hmm. I looked pretty hard. Wow. And so when I met them, you know, I just realized, you know, they are uh, like a very remarkable team. And it's important for them to be able to give this a shot. I think that they could build something incredibly meaningful, um, and provide a lot of, um, a lot of fun and entertainment in the world. And so that's what I decided to do. I decided to make that investment. And so when we, you know, when we when I made the investment, we, um, you know, we committed to meeting on a regular basis, and I, you know, I provide as much feedback and support as I possibly can. But you know, we're I just had a conversation with Nadia in which we debated a little bit on uh, capitalism.
2: <laughs> wow! Just the other day,
0: you know what I mean. So it's not like it's not like we're sitting there around just talking about metrics the whole time. It's more about like how can we help you jointly build the philosophy of what your of what your company is and and you know and not just like look at it as a um, as a like all right, well you were at 50 users now you need to be at five million users and how are you going to get to the users? I feel like <laughs> that's table stakes. Yeah. I I think that the the real value comes when you can help someone uh, grow and recognize their dreams um, in the same way that um, Trent and Jimmy did for me.
1: Yeah, that's good. Okay, favorite book?
0: Favorite book? Yeah. Uh, The Chronology of Water.
1: Okay, favorite podcast?
0: um man that's a tough one uh i would say my current favorite podcast is um pod save america but i mean close i mean serial season one was extraordinary
1: okay you're not a gimlet fan no Uh um, it's
0: okay i mean uh, there's plenty of there's plenty of good stuff yeah there's plenty I of mean, good I, stuff. you know there's plenty of, there's a million podcasts that are great i know
1: uh including this one um yeah. Um favorite Instagram page.
0: <laughs> um a black ink power tattoo from Amsterdam. I think that they do the most incredible black black ink uh, artwork. I'm not sure, I'm not a big fan of geometric tattoos that much, but I think that um, this movement that's within the tattoo world of using only black and gray and white is a very interesting artistic expression of the form.
1: Cool. And finally one piece of advice you would give to startup founders right now?
0: Don't raise money from VCs unless you absolutely believe you are going to be a VC level outcome. It will change your life in a way that may not be what you want.
1: Wow. And that's coming from a VC, guys. Christ. Okay. Okay. All right. (laughs) Okay, Okay, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was very fun. Absolutely. Um, And thank
0: you so much for your and whatnot. Um, also, if anyone, anybody, any of your audience wants to reach out for me, I'm uh, at localbyproxy on Twitter, or I mean, you can just straight up email me, but you know, that's that's, it's, that's good. it's probably easier for me to get a response on Twitter than it is from email these, these days.
1: Cool. And can you give that to one more time?
0: It's uh, at localbyproxy, so L-O-C-A-L D boy, Y, P-R-O-X-Y Just search Ryan Walsh Floodgate on Twitter, and you'll
1: find me. Awesome. There you go, guys. You got it. All right, Brian. Thank you so much. Just want to say another massive thank you to Ryan for coming on the show today and dropping all that knowledge on us. Um, I love all the name dropping, the Jimmy Iovine and the Dr. Dre. Uh, It was awesome. I think Ryan said a lot of thought-provoking things on this episode, but what stood out to me the most, other than, you know, Jimmy Iovine, was the getting rid of processes. Now, that could have been a whole podcast interview on its own. And I agree to some extent that processes can actually slow things down, but it does bring about order, especially as your team grows. Um, But I'd love to know what you guys think. So hit me up on Twitter at StartUpHMD and share your thoughts. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning into the show. And if you haven't already, please subscribe on the Apple Podcasting app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. They honestly do go a long way. Okay, until next time, guys, keep grinding.